This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Ginny Booth Potter. She is the author of the new book, Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, One Woman's Journey into Everyday Anti-Racism. This is a wonderful book for anyone who's looking to start the process of educating and improving oneself and committing to a lifelong journey of anti-racism. This is especially helpful for people who are white, And that is the story and the context in which Jenny is sharing her own journey of this particular lifelong work. And I'm excited for you to hear this interview. So we're going to get right to it. As always, I'm going to mention that you can support this show via a subscription to the Post Evangelical Post, which is my substack. It is the best way to directly support this show. You can support it for just $5 a month. I'm doing a promotion through the remainder of this month where you can subscribe for five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year Uh, you will find links to that promotion right in the show notes so that you can take advantage of that you can also head on over to postevangelicalpost.com and subscribe for free Uh, that is my newsletter as well as where i publish all the other resources that i post online with everybody sort of going in various directions Uh, Within social media nowadays, that is where I'm going to refer people to find me and my work at the postevangelicalpost.com. Again, postevangelicalpost.com slash support is where you can learn about how to support this show, including access to merch stores and my bookshop.org page where you can help support the show by buying Jenny's book, as well as all the other wonderful authors who appear on the show. All right, let's get right to it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Ginny Booth Potter. She is the author of Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, One Woman's Journey into Everyday Anti-Racism. She is also the co-host of The Next Question, a web series about expanding our imagination for racial justice. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, Blake. Thanks so much. I'm really excited for our conversation. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for the opportunity. I actually had the chance to read your book early in the process and actually was able to gladly provide an endorsement, which you can find as well. Uh, And I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. But before we get into that, I would also love to talk a bit about what led you to writing the book. And much of what this show is about is sort of unpacking our our social and religious history, you know, really small stuff like that. So, (laughs) so yeah, let's, so before we dive into your book, I'd love to hear a little bit of about your life and let the listener hear as well. So let's sort of start at the beginning like we like we like to do. And uh, what sort of 
church environment did you grow up in and what was your sort of first uh, relationship to to religion overall yeah 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 it's interesting i know we'll get to the book but it's interesting how even thinking back to kind of like my roots in the church they don't feel they don't feel disconnected from my roots in like racial justice understanding mm-hmm. and confusion <laughs> but but yeah i grew up so i was born in 1982 and My parents were really super involved with their local evangelical free church. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in the the E-free denomination and yeah, like was, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart at age five when I was in kindergarten. I still vividly remember like the Sunday school classroom that I was in and the woman that like helped me, you know, say the sinner's prayer and and then I remember saying it again <laughs> and again <laughs> and again, just to make sure that it stuck because I was mm. really <laughs> terrified of ending up in hell <laughs> and ha ha ha, you know, <laughs> just eternal damnation, <laughs> uh, just trying to avoid that. So yeah, I, and you know, I, I really think I was, I was a very serious kid. And so I think mm. I took my faith really seriously and really wanted to own it. So by the time I was in like middle school and into high school, I was starting to go to upwards of like three different youth groups. I mean, I went to my parents, I went to the nearby mega churches youth group and was really involved there. And then I went to like a punk rock uh, (laughs) coffee house that was also Uh, masquerading as a church, or it it was a church, I guess, like a youth church. And so, you know, I was part of the generation that, you know, like the, like acquire the fire conferences were going on. And, you know, the name of one of my youth groups was sold out. And so it was just this, like, just like, you know, you were either like on fire. What? Was it S-O-U-L-E-D sold? Of course it was. Of course it was. And so you just real clever. I mean, maybe my love of like puns comes from both my dad with his like dad jokes, but also just like corny Christian youth group people being like, let's, whoa, they won't see this coming. You know, we're going to spell sold differently. (laughs) You know, this will really like resonate with them. But I was, I, you know, I was just do like, just deeply immersed in all the, all the paraphernalia that was coming out of the, you know, the white evangelical, I don't even know what to, like Mecca that is focused on the family. And, you know, I was reading mm-hmm. like Brio magazine and just, you know, just like all the things just like fully, you know, doing the like, see you at the flagpole at my high school, wanting people to know that I was standing apart, that I was a Christian mm-hmm. and And that really, yeah, that marked me. Like, I think it gave me a lot of purpose. And I think it was an outlet for a lot of the passion that I had that I really, from a young age, always really wanted to be someone that was making a difference. And I think the container of the church allowed me to feel like I had an outlet for wanting to make Mm -hmm. a difference in the world, for wanting to matter, wanting my life to matter. And so, like, I think any origin story or, you know, family of origin story, there's a lot of like deep complexity of feelings as I look back and look to where I am. And there's a mixture of 
deep anger (laughs) and remorse at ways that I felt like it, you know, it wasn't maybe like the healthiest culture to grow up in. And then also I have deep gratitude for, for where I am today. And so, yeah, so it's, it's just, you know, I, I hold the both end of my roots of my church roots. And there's so much more to be said for that because I didn't just like, I wasn't just like, you know, sold out and like on fire for Jesus that really like, you know, gravitated towards my career and what I was interested in, you know, I, up until a few years ago, I was working at a mega church. And so this is not like, well, that was an interesting coming of age time. And, you know, now I left the church in the past and I'm off to other things. It it really, it dragged me. I dragged it. I don't know for, (laughs) for, uh, for a really long time into even 2020. And so I'm still, yeah. I think, in therapy, thank goodness, really naming kind of all the different different points of like trauma that are connected with being part of a religious experience where you really believe that you are being led into good and then having to unravel and and poke at it and say, where, where was I duped? Or where was I complicit? Or, you know, just all the complexities of being part of institutions that ultimately fail. And so Mm. I'm still doing, so we don't need to turn this into my therapy session. I have therapy (laughs) at three today, but, uh, (laughs) but it's, it's interesting how much it's still, you know, things that I thought I'd processed even from childhood that are, that are coming back by naming the like through lines of, of manipulation that I think I experienced. So, Mm. so yeah, Mm. it's not just in the past for me. I think it's in the like recent past, not just the distant past. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and by nature of that, that, that speaks to, I, I think that's a very common experience. People continue to, to really try to determine what these institutions, what these practices, beliefs, had on had on ourselves and on our cohorts and our our parents generational cohorts and even farther back these things are it does feel like you know i i was also i was i we're very similar in age i was i was born in 83 so and was in the same sort of like youth group culture was uh Mm -hmm. that was the culture uh i did have friends like you who had went to multiple youth groups I I was I was deep into my youth group and then like did like instead of family fellowship of Christian Ashley athletes we had Christian uh-huh. students at my school. <laughs> They're like Things- we're gonna broaden this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so many so many points of of relationship and and being able to relate to just that that moment in time and. I certainly remember, I think at one point there was like a Newsweek article about, you know, this generation that's on fire for God or whatever. And it was all about, uh, you know, and Cornerstone was big and all these other, all these other big, uh, what, Ichthus was another one, big Christian music festivals. And the, the culture was so strong and just enveloping everything. Yeah. And that's just so interesting. Like I've never really like had, I'm sure I've maybe had this thought, but I don't don't know if I've ever verbalized it before, but there was, as you were just talking about, you know, the ways that we would kind of like segment off be like, okay, now you're in the youth group and now 
okay, so we've told you to burn all of your secular CDs. And so, but now we have, you know, these Christian artists that you can listen to because they are on a Christian label. And apparently that means some, you know, that I don't know what that means. It means that they're on your team or whatever. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like it was, it was almost, you know, I, and then we heard verses like, you know, be in the world, but not of the world. Like that was such common vernacular mm-hmm. um, and then scripture just like quoted at us. And I feel like as we get older and we are getting introduced to more language, I feel like, you know, you hear, I feel like in my the last five years, I feel like the word grooming has been introduced in a lot of circles that I've been a part of. And I feel like those circles of our like youth group heyday were almost like grooming us to feel like supremacy. Mm-hmm. Like there was such a, like, you haven't figured out, you have the golden ticket. You are going to make it to heaven. Your friends are going to burn in hell. Like you are in the world, but not of it. So like, you're better than like what the cesspool of humanity that you're around is. And when you start getting filled with those messages of I'm holier, I'm purer, I'm better than other people around me. Like, I feel like I'm sure some psychologists or sociologists have studied this of just the, you know, the, the, the like on ramp to dehumanization of other people. Right. And it's like that type of messaging that like, we're the chosen ones we're you know, Mm -hmm. God's, we're fulfilling prophecies or, you know, just whatever they were pumping us up with, it really did create a sense of superiority from our peers. And I just, the lasting damage of that, I just, I don't know if I've made that connection of, of what that really, of what harm, like not only did it separate us from the world, but it made us feel like above the world. And that's a really dangerous place to be filling a bunch of 16 year olds. Like yeah. from the suburbs of Chicago, like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 So, so that's, that's exactly where I was as well. I was in the suburbs of Chicago and I was, I mean, I, I certainly think of, I certainly think of that period with, with a, a lot of cringe, you know, just thinking of the way I acted amongst my, my peers and everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my what would have been you know like my 20 year anniversary was like the the year after you know covid the covid primary major lockdowns um so i don't think we had a 20 year reunion but i probably would have just gone around and apologized (laughs) i went back to a football game and i just felt recently because my nephew was playing for the same the same school i graduated from high school and I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, if I ran into anybody, like <laughs> I'm not who I used to be. <laughs> um, totally. That sort of <laughs> ran through my head yeah. while I was there. Yeah. Getting back to your story, you, you mentioned that you went to an EV, EV free church. So I went to an EV free church for a little bit in Chicago, first free in Andersonville. Um, so okay, I, went, yeah. I, I went there for a little while. And I believe, it, and we can get, this is a, you know. A sort of church nerd type show. So is yes. <laughs> EV Free is also Evangelical Covenant. Is that right? Is that are they the same or are they're, they related? They're oh, not the same. Okay, they're not the same. All right. And North Park is an Evangelical Covenant school, correct? So yes. what what yes. led you what led you to making that choice? I mean, I also am a Christian sure. Christian college graduate. So so I also 
was very much in that youth group culture, you know, at the ripe age of 17, felt called to the ministry and made my, my college choices accordingly. So what led you to, to go to North Park? And because that, that became a transformative place for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, grew up, I think as we just mentioned, I grew up outside of Chicago. My parents are from Iowa and moved to the city when my dad started working downtown, but, you know, they stayed comfortably distanced, a train right away in the suburbs and were always mystified by me that I loved going to the city as much as I possibly could. Like as soon as I was kind of of age and could hang out places alone, it was like going into the city with my, with my friends. So I always really felt, I don't know, I felt like something like clicked with me in Chicago is the closest city that I have proxy to. And it's interesting because I look back and it felt like, oh, I, of course I ended up at this like school in Chicago, but my, my final two choices were between Wheaton, <laughs> can't even say the, oh, that laughing, mm-hmm. between Wheaton College and North Park, <laughs> which, which feel very different. And one of, and I think it was helpful in, for those that don't know, Wheaton is, you know, like, I'm sure people, but I mean, Wheaton is. I think people that go to Wheaton say it's the Harvard of Christian colleges, right? That's it's like correct. very academically. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Fact check. Only 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 the people that go to that go to Wheaton and graduate from Wheaton say that. <laughs> uh-huh. Harvard of Harvard of the Christian schools and, you know, very a lot of like mandatory requirements in terms of attending chapel and, you know, I think they at the time they were still I sure it's a dry campus and there were th- rules like no dancing and you had to sign a statement of faith and North Park required none of those things. There was no statement of faith required. There was no mandatory attending of anything. And to me, that just like clicked with me more. I, I wanted to be in a place where I felt like people were not just fulfilling a quota, but that they really like wanted to be in the worship spaces that we were occupying, that it felt like it would be more diverse in like thought in terms of you don't have to be a Christian to attend this Christian school. So there was just, it felt like, you know, I'd gone to public school my whole life. And so the idea of kind of running into a classroom and shutting the door on anyone that didn't share the exact same faith didn't feel good to me. I'm sure there were many different reasons for that. One, probably because I was raised like a good evangelical. And so like, where's your ministry if you're just with people that are already converted, right? So like, there was probably some thwarted, gross, like, I get to witness to people if I'm in class with them in college. But I, I, but I do think there was also an earnest desire of, of wanting to learn from different people and not wanting us to all feel like we're just lemmings and carbon copies of each other, but but really feeling like there was some some true diversity in in people's experiences. So yeah, I I, I knew nothing of like denominations didn't really mean that much to me growing up. Like the I'm really glad you didn't like ask me any harder questions about the like e free church because I have like <laughs> one more I have like one more possible like factoid to offer you, but then I'm out because. The other youth groups and churches I was involved in were very much, you know, non-denominational. There was no denominational affiliation or alliance. So denominations to me, like, didn't really, uh, there wasn't a lot of 
merit to them in my, or, mm. or, or like, it didn't matter to me. Like no one had taught me the significance of this denomination means this, this one means this. Like I knew Catholics, like, are they actually Christian? That's about as far as we got in terms of <laughs> other mainline Protestant was like, geez, I don't know what, the, like, I don't know if they're on fire, you know, like, but like beyond that, like, so going to a covenant college didn't mean anything to me until I got there. And it was like, why is everybody on my floor like blonde and sweet, like has Swedish origins? Because that is how <laughs> the the covenant started. It's it's a denomination from Sweden to mm-hmm. you know they I think they took root in like Minnesota and in the Midwest and then grew from there. But I, I appreciated the flexibility that I felt, the permission to to show up and to not have. To, to be able to say to people, like, I'm here because I want to be, not because I signed something and I'm in violation of being expelled if I don't, you know, if they don't see me at chapel service every week or every day, you know, as the instance in some some other Christian schools that I knew about. So so I had a, I, I, I look at the trajectory of my life. I mean, I met my husband at North Park. I had, I think what you're going to maybe ask me a next question about, but like, I had some deeply formational experiences there. And yeah, I don't want to talk like out of order, but I think a lot of my work in counseling has been around being in places that I thought were leading me to go beyond like where I was capable of going in terms of justice work or in terms of like, I mean, really that in terms of justice work and both at North Park Mm. And at the church that I worked at, which I also will name. So I worked at Willow Creek for just short of 10 years. And to to have a point where I'm like, wait, how did I like lap you? How did I, I was supposed to be following mm. you. Like you were supposed to be leading me in either my faith or, or pursuit of justice. Like, why are you behind me now? What happened? Why, wait. So I, I think that is, I'm so grateful that I was at North Park at the time that I was. And I'm also deeply disappointed by by what what the last 15 years have revealed about institutions that I once held in such high esteem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I I do want to talk about you alluded to it. It yeah. is it is a, a major part of a major part of your book and it sort of becomes the mm-hmm. catalyst for a lot of things that follow and then so i i want to talk about about that and and then i do i'm gonna backtrack mm-hmm. slightly after that this is a, a really good segue so so you while you were there you had this in my mind like incredible sort of opportunity it was not it was certainly does not sound like it was it was an easy sort of thing for anyone to sign up for but you had this opportunity to again this is a chicago based this is the north <laughs> and and general and generally speaking as someone who was also educated in public school system in indiana and, and illinois like a lot of times there was a lot a lot of color blindness in the 80s and 90s or this idea that like that racism ended with the end of jim crow in the 60s you know, just 20 years ago, <laughs> like when you think about it, those things were only 20 or 30 years ago, but like when you're a child, that's forever ago, but you had this opportunity to, to travel on this bus tour and, and 
the experiences you had there became this catalyst that led to a lot of things in your life. So if, with that in mind, could you could you talk a little bit about that? It, it it filters throughout your entire book, but if you could just talk about how that that experience spurred you to to make this longer term commitment to pursuing justice and understanding anti-racism work. Yeah. I mean, growing up in the church, we love a good conversion story, right? Like that's, that's like, <laughs> that's, the, right. yes. <laughs> that's the golden. Yeah. That's the, the, I'm not going to even try to make a sports metaphor touchdown. I don't know. Like that's the ball game. Just me too. Look at me. There you go. You did but, it. <laughs> but, but growing up in the church, I really, you know, I was like, I always looked at people around me who had these like dramatic testimonies of, oh, I was like doing drugs and I was in the gutter. And then like Jesus like took me by the hand and rescued me. And I was like, wow, like what did I have to atone for as a five-year-old when I said the sinner's prayer was like, sorry, I, you know, said my brother, I wish he hadn't been born, which is sure like somewhat hurtful, but, but I was always envious of these like really dramatic stories. And I, 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 it's like, it's fair to say that this experience that I went on college was a dramatic conversion of, of magnitude of like, it, it, it flipped my whole world upside down. It really was the, like, I once was blind, but now I see, like, I, I had this experience where through the college, they offered a annual bus trip to the South. And it was really hinging on a few things. One was that half the students would be black and half the students would not be black. And then you would get assigned a partner. So leading up to the trip, we had like four weeks with our beloved Africana studies professor who really kind of helped bring color and bring a racial awareness to history and history lessons and how so often I was taught them, which to your point was very like colorblind or, you know, we're just, we're just telling like factual history and we're, you know, but it was very much the victor's history, right? It was very much told from, from history is told from the side of those who won the wars, who got to then be in charge, who got to maintain leadership and power. And so I was learning about history in a way that was really filling in a lot of gaps from the way that I had been taught it, where to your point, yeah, it was like, Man, I'm so grateful for Martin Luther King because that sounded really terrible and 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 missing out the part that like remember he was like he was assassinated by some like he was murdered and he was one of many people that was murdered and these things are ongoing and so 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 I'm learning like actual broad American history and world history in these classes and then leading up to the trip my uh, my partner, her name is Katrina. We would meet a few times before we went on this trip and hear more of her like personal history, her personal narrative. And we grew up, she grew up actually not far from you, but she, but we grew up like probably 45 minutes away from each other. And so I thought like, wow, we have all these things in common. And as we started talking, just like that, like facade quickly went away as we started talking about stories of racism and discrimination and lessons that she was taught from her family. And so I, yeah, I I think it started eroding a lot of this, like, we're all the same kumbaya, we all bleed red, like, you know, just kind of like Jesus loves us. Yes, he does. You know, Mm -hmm. red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. Like a lot of those things were, were 
being chipped away at by just even like these conversations. And then, you know, it was like a deeply immersive bus experience where we traveled for three days to different civil rights sites. We went and actually saw the hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. We went to a working plantation where we heard from our white tour guides how these were where the good slave owners lived. And so the slaves that were the people here that were enslaved were actually treated to a very good life compared to other people that were owned by other humans. And we went to a lynching museum where we walked in and there was a map of the United States and all the recorded lynchings that they had access to. And they did not stop in 1968 like I expected them to or had been taught. You know, they went into the 70s and 80s and 90s and the trip took place in the early 2000s. So like, and it was not just like, oh, anything south of the Mason-Dixon line is where this like, like, just the, just all these things that I'd been taught, like this was in the past, this was a Southern problem, you had nothing to do with it, we don't even see color, like all these messages that I'd been taught very, like, no one sat down with me and had these types of conversations, but it was in the ethos of everything that I was digesting from my church culture to my family culture to how, you know, even public schools were teaching things. And so I had this moment where we had, we were leaving the lynching museum and we got back on the bus and on the bus, they had a microphone at the front. So you could be processing kind of more, more privately, like with your partner, or you could come up to the bus and process more publicly. And so like white student after white student was basically getting up to the microphone and saying like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry that this happened, but like, I wasn't there or, you know, the Holocaust happened too, or my grandparents were in Sweden. So I don't know why I have to be held accountable for, for ancestral damage that wasn't even like, you know, my ancestors doing. And, and then you'd have like black person after black person basically going up and saying like, can you just please see the pain that we're that we've like faced as a people that we're holding now and it was this like kind of like just back and forth of of one person like reaching out and the other person like kind of turning their back like that's kind of like the visual that comes to mind and I just something about that dynamic like really I was able to like see it for what it was I think in real time and then my partner just was like Jenny go up there and say something and so I walked to the front of the bus and I like didn't really know what to say, but I kind of addressed what I was seeing. And there was like a round of applause from from the black students on the bus. And like that what that like broke me. Like I just started crying and it just felt this enormous wave of grace of this like concept of I'm getting something that I don't deserve in this moment. I'm getting I'm getting in an embrace when I could have like a cold shoulder turned towards me. And, and that was, you know, out of all the things that I experienced, I saw like, I saw horrific, horrific, horrific pictures and words and, and current retellings of history that are so deeply hurtful and harmful and hateful. And I said like the tiniest thing to try to like make amends for that. And I was received in a way that I didn't deserve. And, Mm -hmm. and in that moment, I said the words like, you know, I can't, I can't fix the pain 
of the past and I can't fix the pain like that I'm seeing here, but I can work for the rest of my life to, to, to see it and to like be with, be in the pain with you. And then I said what ultimately became the title of my book, which is doing nothing is no longer an option for me. Like I, it it, it was this like call to, I need to, something needs to change. And the name of the trip that I went on is it's called Sankofa, which is a Swahili word, which means looking back in order to move forward. And that really became kind of my rally cry. You know, I, I was clinging to these words of doing nothing is no longer an option, but it really was like, I need to look back at my life and at like a broader history in order to move forward so that I'm not just repeating the same mistakes that we've seen throughout time. And so that was kind of, yeah, that was the catalytic two, you know, uh, two paths are in front of me and which one am I going to take kind of moment. And yeah, it, it changed. I mean, literally that moment changed my life and changed the trajectory of my future and what I wanted to, what I wanted to make sure that I stood for, for the forever. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I mean, I'm very thankful that it, that it, that you shared those moments in your in your book as well and where i want to backtrack just a, a small bit within within the narrative of the book that also ties into that moment the way you described it is you actually start your book talking about white guilt and that's where most white people start they that's mm -hmm. sort of and and i think that was such a wise decision to start there because to ignore the existence of white guilt empowers it. But by starting there, I think you, in the same way that Katrina gave you permission to share, uh, Katrina being your, your, your travel partner on this trip, gave you permission to share. I think by you starting talking about your own guilt, about the existence of white guilt, you're, you're empowering fellow white people who have good intentions to do the same thing. And mm -hmm. I think within just to talk a little bit again about how you just described that experience, like the white guilt response is, mm -hmm. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. My ancestors weren't there. This wasn't my direct fault. And being defensive. And then like, mm -hmm. I mean, there's entire media ecosystems built around coddling that. <laughs> like, yeah, um, totally. and the fact that the fact that you confront it and address it is is in and of itself a powerful thing so, and i'm curious you know like you, between that moment when you were an undergraduate and now i mean that's all that's well over 10 years this was not something you took lightly it was not like a mountaintop moment i'm sure it felt like a yeah. mountaintop moment but then it turned into continuous work so yeah. why what led to that choice to start there? And why was it so important to start with your own book and your own story around white guilt and what, you know, this sort of noxious type of thing that, 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 and, you know, it makes, makes white people squirm. You know, I'm, I'm a little fidgety yeah. right now, even talking about it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Are you feeling guilty, Blake? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always Maybe. got a reason to feel guilty. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> oh goodness. You know, there's so so much I mean like yeah, there's so much meat to what you're even offering up and so I'm just trying to figure out the most concise 
way to get to the heart of what you're saying. And, and I think part of it is, oh gosh. I mean, if I, I can actually quote, I, I think a, a part of your book that while, while you, I, I know that, you know, that, that was a large framing of a question as far as, you know, talking about white guilt, that's a big topic in and of itself. But I think one of the passages in which you get to the heart of it is, do you mind if I quote from your book? And No, please. That's great. Okay. You're right. I'm not suggesting we let facing one's privilege and supremacy be easy. However, when we leave people with only the concept of I am, quote, of I am racist, but with no possibility of change, period, they're cut off from movement, transformation, and growth. We're relying on the tool of shame when we instead expose the truth and move to the reality of I am racist and there are things I can do to challenge that. It gives us somewhere to go. There can and should be deep feelings of sadness, grief, and yes, guilt. But the end goal is movement away from those racist thoughts and repeated and unchecked actions, not the sinking feeling that there is no way out. Within the text, you like you, you nailed it again, but I, even... I think that is that's the way you you respond to that within the text itself. I, as far as like writer to writer, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and thinking about the process, I'm I am curious about what led what led you to start there. Yeah, yeah, and and that you know that being the place from which the rest of the story, yeah. your story of of pursuing anti racism long term how that unfolds from that starting point. Yeah, no, that's, thank you for reading that. And I mean, yes, thinking through the writing process, you know, I, I will even let me back up, like what I was even just saying about Sankofa, right? This idea mm-hmm. that the whole concept is looking back in order to move forward. So I felt it really important for my reader to not start with me when I have this like, wow, go Jenny, go way to name the white, you know, way to put the white people in their place and, and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and extend an arm of friendship and of, you know, sisterhood to like the black people on the bus. I wanted, I wanted to let people know that you have a racialized history as a white person. And it is important to name those things because when I'm being interviewed to go on this trip and they ask me why I want to go, None of those memories were were consciously swirling around in my head. None mm, of the memories mm-hmm. that I have of and I kind of go through the first racialized memories I have in the in chapter 1 in in the you know the like from the gate I'm letting my reader into the secret that like guess what I've I have a racialized past and I have I am a racist and I have done I haven't just like violently been complicit, but I have actually acted in racist ways. And so I wanted to model that we don't hold up white people in this work to ooh and ah at them. <laughs> like, like if you're doing that, like, like to, to think that there's like white people that could be exempt from the cancer of racism in our society. I wanted to hold up, look at the ways that I have like completely engaged both in a, that was confusing, you know, that was a confusing moment. And I didn't have language to like push back or fight back all the way to, I tell a story of, you know, following two black women in a store that I was working at. And, Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important to name the mistakes in this work because it is not, 
like, oh, what happens if I make a mistake as a white person and pursuing racial justice? It's like, oh no, honey, like not, you've already made mistakes. And the quicker that you can like let those go, not because they didn't create harm, but because like you holding on to them so tightly is like not freeing you up to hold space for actual work that could maybe bring healing to communities and to people outside yourself. So I, I, I wanted I wanted mistakes like to be woven into the story because mm, that's what mm-hmm. being in the work long enough, that is what I see white people being so terrified of the most. They're not terrified of racism continuing. They're being terrified. They're terrified that someone's going to call them out as racist or call them out as something of someone who is like not a good person or who has hurt other people. And that's what we see in that response. Like, I I think white people want to hold on to a single or singular. I think most people do. We, We don't, we don't do well with nuance. We don't do well with complexity. So you're mm-hmm. telling me that I have to hold in one hand the fact that like I am a racist, but on the other hand, I also am a good person. Yeah. Well, how how do I possibly hold those both at the same time? So I must have to drop that I'm a racist in order to like hold tightly to this concept that like no, I'm a good person with good intentions. And what I am offering and trying to help people understand is you actually can hold both those things. Right? Mm-hmm. Like like the fact say like my ancestors weren't here if might be right. Like, sure, their ancestors weren't here. I don't know very many people who are in this work that are trying to hold people accountable for like things that weren't done. But I think what we're what we're those of us in this work are trying to do is say the impact of your ancestors is harmfully impacting people alive today. So they're not here to atone for the past, but you are to try to, you know, but you can't be doing that if all you're trying to do is say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Don't make me anything but a good person. Like when that becomes the thing you're ultimately centering in the conversation, anything that attacks that is has to like, you know, you have to like thwart away. And I think it's so important for, for white people in particular to say being impacted by the cancer of racism does not ultimately like cast me out. As you know, it just means that I have to name it in order to like see it and heal it and and face it. But the like, no one is like. I, I again, I think once you're in these conversations long enough, you do start to like hear it over and over again. Where you're like, this isn't like you talking. This is like somewhere along the line. Like it's part of being part of like a larger system and it's belonging to a racialized society and Mm -hmm. i don't know if what i'm saying is making sense but like it's 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 bigger than just am i a racist it's it's bigger than that for white people and we have to get beyond that and not have that be hanging us up and we have to get to a point where we recognize this is going to happen like i probably made like a mistake yesterday you know, but like that doesn't, but my commitment to racial justice needs to be bigger than my commitment to protecting my ego and, and saying that there's nothing that I could continue to work on and that, you know, my good intentions maybe aren't the only thing at play here. Right. Right. But yeah, it's, there's deep roots to that. There's deep roots to, we've 
we've only like, you know, I, I think it's helpful for people to think about racism more like a spectrum and Mm -hmm. to, to figure out where on the, like where on the racist spectrum you have been at. Because I think, you know, when we, when we have like, you know, years like 2020 and we have, you know, headlines, a lot of white people take comfort in the, like, I would never shoot an unarmed black person. Oh, I would never call the cops on a black family just enjoying their barbecue. And we think, you know, we think as long as we're not like on the, the more extreme spectrum, Mm -hmm. like we're kind of okay. So when people are calling us out for being on the like, maybe less overtly capital R racist, you know, actions or ignorance or anything, I think that's where a lot of the defensiveness comes. And a lot of the like, don't make me feel guilty because I'm not as bad as those other people. And there's a lot of deflection, I think, that occurs in order to not get into touch with the feelings of guilt and mm-hmm. the the appropriate feelings of guilt. And I don't mean like the individualistic guilt that we use to sometimes try to like, you know, manipulate people into behavior, but like the sitting in the like society in the guilt of just like humanity. Like, I don't know. It's uh it's right. but you can't stay yeah. there forever. Yeah, yeah. There's what you're saying reminds me of this of this one part of Robert Jones, Robert Jones's book, White Too Long, which is a similar sort is a is a similar book in that it's sort of a, a personal reckoning with white supremacy and racism and and Christianity in particular. And there's there's one part where he's, he actually references a, a I think a couple decade old study from some sociologists who said that white evangelicals in particular have a restricted moral imagination because they have a limited mm. cultural toolkit and they they use a lot of very sociological tech, technical language to describe that and not all of it's on the top of my head right now but one of the things is is that they don't one one element of this is that within white evangelicalism the the places that formed both of us there's this there's this emphasis on individual action mm-hmm. and a and a similar equal sort of skepticism about systemic things and what uh-huh. that results in is this is this sort of this this unhealthy sort of homeostasis of of yeah. uh, just keeping the status quo as is and then as a result the status quo being white supremacy <laughs> in these mm-hmm. spaces whether it's whether it's overt or implicit mm-hmm. um or subtle whatever it is the result is is that there's not a direct reckoning or when, when i say reckoning I, I i don't mean that in like a i just mean being yeah. forthright about history and about Mm-hmm. And about the sort of things that that your book is struggling with, and one of the one other thing that I think a lot of people, whether they are white or they're a person of color, reading your reading your book, um, will relate to. And you said like you felt like you had had lapped some mm-hmm. some people in leadership, and you talk about this experience in particular when after following the Trayvon Martin sentencing coming through. And the church, not the church you worked at, not responding, uh, not being up 
rising to the occasion and uh, addressing mm-hmm. it. Could you could you speak to that a little bit and about how how you sort of relate to these institutions institutions now and how you sort of understand their their role either in your life or sort of in society when when they are not when they lack the capacity or the interest to have the same sort of sustained effort to address these things within their own practices yeah <sighs> yeah so i i worked at I don't name them in my book because I just didn't, but I, anyone that is paying attention knows, but I worked at Willow Creek from 2011 to 2020. And that Mm -hmm. was a, that was a time in our society, in our country. I mean, just (laughs) gosh, like there should probably be a history each month of that decade probably needs its own like history book. Like there was, there was just a lot, Mm -hmm. I think (laughs) of, things that were like buried into the ground really coming into full view. And so, you know, we kind of start off that decade with like Obama wins his, his second, you know, his second term in office and then we have to your to the story that I tell in my book, it's the George Zimmerman verdict after Trayvon Martin was murdered and if you don't know that story, you know, Trayvon was 17-year-old unarmed black kid walking in his in his neighborhood and his parent, I think it was his dad's neighborhood in Florida and like a, you know, self-appointed neighborhood watch volunteer, like chased him down and shot him and got away with it. I mean, had literally zero consequences for killing this kid. And at the time at the church, there was we were kind of still off the heels of like racial reconciliation. Like that was really what, so the church was kind of moving away. And I, I, I think this speaks beyond Willow, but at Willow in particular, we were moving from like, we don't talk about this. We don't see color, you know, by even naming that I noticed that you're black automatically means I'm a racist. So like the best thing is just to say we're all one under, you know, we all, We all, yeah, we're all the same, basically. And weaponizing that in Galatians, there's neither Hebrew nor Greek. Yes. Thank (laughs) you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, man. Yes. Totally. Like, so if you bring it up, then you're the racist or you're the one that wants to cause disunity in the body of Christ. Yes. So much, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so much of that. But it really felt like, you know, I was working at the church and my day job was like helping put on the weekend services, but I was also part of this, uh, we were called the multicultural training team. And that was under the leadership of Austin Channing Brown, who I actually write about in my book, because I met her on the Sankofa trip, we went to the same college. And that's really where our friendship began. And then we were kind of reunited at Willow. I think she started working there 2012. And I believe the Zimmerman verdict was 2013. And so like, we were working with in different departments, putting on trainings, trying to help people understand that like, hey, the fact that you stereotype so consistently is actually part of being part of belonging to a larger society, right? It's not just all up to you individual person for just being inherently prejudiced and, you know, wanting to stereotype these ways. Like you've been influenced by belonging to a racist society. And so we were doing all, you know, we were having all this like movement kind of behind the scenes and taking taking staff through these trainings and experiences. And it felt like, wow, like there was, 
like breakthroughs and aha moments and people kind of recognizing their own implicit and overt racism. And we got up to the weeks, you know, after Trayvon, Trayvon Martin's murder, I think really, I think that really shook a lot of white people up. And, you know, there's no way to prepare for that happening. Like in terms of as a church, we tried to kind of figure out what we would address and how we would respond to it. And there were certain rules kind of for the institution. Like we always made sure that we did something to honor Martin Luther King in January. Like that was always, that was like a value that we held really high. We really tried to make sure we did something for February and Black History Month. So kind of those like celebration, like, all right, like we're going to kind of wrestle through it. Those things were on the calendar (laughs) and everything else wasn't. And so we got to the weekend, we got, you know, we got to the trial of George Zimmerman and there started to be kind of like a groundswell in the circles that I was in of like, what are we going to do when this is announced? Like, what are we going to do when the verdict is announced? There was a lot of apprehension, especially from black teammates and black people within the, within staff, which were not that many that like, what happens if he gets away with it? You know, like, like, like bracing themselves more for that than any sort of justice or accountability offered through a guilty verdict and, you know, sentencing. Mm-hmm. And so there were, you know, I, I was like copied on emails that were going out to the senior pastor leading up to it. Like, Hey, like, what are, you know, wh- what are we going to say? And, and being met with like different, different degrees of like interest or, you know, openness also, you know, how, how do we like uh, as a church with, you know, multiple people with, you know, multiple values, how do we like make sure we're not giving this more attention than it needs or just, I don't know, kind of like the, the, the workaround of, we'll see <laughs> was, mm-hmm. you know, was basically the, the promise. And we got up to this weekend where the sentencing happened on a Saturday and Willow had three services. So they had a Saturday night service. The sentencing happened that night. And then we had two more Sunday services. So I actually got called into like a backstage meeting where it was being discussed, like, what, you know, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? And literally witnessing some like very overt pleas for, from black teammates of like, I am in so much pain. I am a black dad raising a black son. Like I need the church to say something. And the senior pastor basically saying, like, I feel like I'm letting you down, but I don't do well in moments of, you know, moments of reaction. Like, I need I need more time to think about what I want to say because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to I don't want to learn by mistake, basically. So the the like directive for the weekend was or for the remaining services was like, nobody say anything about this. Let's let other churches say it, address it. We'll learn from what they say, and then we'll respond kind of off the heels of their learning. So we didn't say anything, or he didn't say anything, but we had the guest pastor said something, and there was like almost immediate ripples of what are the, what's the what is the penance going to be for someone going against the senior pastor's wishes on this and. What she's, I've tried to find the tape of what she actually said. I think what she said was like maybe a sentence and it was kind of a like, if you know, you know. And so it was not a, 
white people get on your knees and repent because there's been, you know, yet again, justice has not been, has been had. And, you know, we need to atone for our sins. Now let's all do corporate confession. And, you know, like, reparations forever like there was there was none of there was nothing overtly divisive or even like direct about what she said and still that was like a step too far and so there was a lot in that weekend that that started to like make sense to me i in the book i do this but in real time i i went back and i read you know mlk talks a lot about the white moderate like that's a that's a recurring mm-hmm people group that he comes back to. And I recognized that I was really being led by white moderates, by white by white people who said, I see what's happening and I care about it. But also the timeline really matters, right? But also we want to take as many people with us as possible. So how do we do this in a way that it's invitational and that, you know, isn't too like hard hitting and just all these, like what felt like at one time felt like wisdom in like an instant switched to, oh, like you have a limit, you have a timeline to justice and it's on, it's according to your comfort level. It's not according to the pleas of the black people that were surrounding you saying, please see my pain. It was on your timetable of if I say this thing, then X donor might not like it and he's out or they're out and so it i think that like the timeline and the sense of urgency that people have is really important to paying to pay attention to there's obviously Mm. some people and i think this has been a critique of a lot of white people in response to things it's like oh my god we see you know like we're here now like what can we where should we go and it's like oh like if this doesn't happen now like wow you know and so that's obviously not helpful. Like this work has been going on for a very long time and it's not going away anytime soon, but there needs to be some sense of urgency, some sense of, of push of this is sustained effort and not based on, not based on like a white person's timeline. I mean, I, I think that's, that's worth, it's not worth, and it's not based on a white person's comfort level or you know a, a perceived risk assessment right mm-hmm. like it cannot be and i think that's what like mlk's frustration with the white moderate started really clicking for me in that time where i was like so we're committed to a point and mm-hmm. that point is when it starts costing us something right? right that 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 seems to be that seems to be when we're like Whoa, hold, wait, oh, wait, we, wait, we wanted to go this far? No, 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 let's like, we, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Let's, <laughs> let, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. let's, and, and, and one of my takeaways from that weekend in particular was many years later, I was doing, um, I was in a book club with some people that worked at different churches across the country. And we were talking about that weekend. We were talking about Zimmerman's verdict of not guilty and they said they were working at churches who were trying to figure out if and what they should say mm-hmm. and they were looking to the church i was at and because we said nothing they said nothing mm. and so this idea that 
we'll pass on this, but someone else will pick it up is like that. Does That doesn't actually, that's not actually happening. Like people are all looking for ways to get out of doing something that could cost them or their institution or their standing within that institution. And that's the pattern that I started seeing over and over again. And that's where I started getting really critical and disheartened that I I thought this work was endless. I thought this pursuit of justice was limitless, but you're showing me time and time again, what the limits are. And it's wrapped up in ego and it's wrapped up in, it can't, it, 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 it can't actually cost me anything. So it it started to become really clear that a lot of what was happening was optics, Mm. that a lot of what was happening was like color conscious casting, but it wasn't actually, we're being transformed by racial justice. We're getting rid of the cancer of white supremacy that's running rampant in this institution, that's running rampant in our society. Mm -hmm. There was not transformation happening in the way that I think it happens when when you really are being transformed, where you're not saying this part is off limits and, you know, which is so like, as I'm saying this, Blake, like I have flashbacks to like programming that I helped put on that was like, God, go anywhere you want. Like I'm your vessel, right? Like I want to be trans, like, like nowhere is off limits from you. Like I'm not going to have, I think like C.S. Lewis writes about that. Like we're not going to have like parts of our like heart that are like, hidden from God, but there Mm -hmm. are going to be parts of our heart that are hidden from the work of justice. There are going to be parts of our heart that are off limits to, to taking risk, you know? And so it was this like incongruous messaging where I'm like, wait, you taught me that like when we're being, when we're being made to be more in Christ likeness, that there is nowhere that Christ can't move. But what I'm watching is in the ways that I feel like being I'm I'm being most transformed and like really like my discipleship is happening was really in these spaces of justice work. And that's the part that I'm watching church leaders put like locks on doors and you know, a caution tape and like don't cross here because you might start dividing the church. And it was very, very disorienting. And it took me years to kind of sift through the hypocrisy of those messages that I was getting. Yeah. It's so, and I, 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 yeah, I think it's, it's hard to think about which, which direction to go after, <laughs> after <laughs> yes. exploring that topic, just because, and you know, because it is, it is very much, I, I think a very common experience for a lot of people who, who did feel like, you know, as if they were told, told one thing to pursue this. And then when the church had the opportunity, the church they were a part of had the opportunity to respond to it in keeping with the very principles that, that are being taught. They, it, it's not that they aren't willing to make mistakes. It's that they aren't willing to do anything. Just like you said, they weren't willing to make those, make those decisions, make those statements because they, they were afraid of, they were afraid of bad PR and losing donors and like all of these other things that, that are weaknesses of institutions and, and systems that, that they're, they're not exempt from the same sort of biases that, that we have as individuals either. There are a couple of other topics that I'd love to touch on, even, even if briefly to sort of round out our, round out our conversation. And, 
unfortunately they're not small topics <laughs> but we can we can at parenthood. least you know parenthood actually is one of them and then like parenting yes. and then the and then the other being this one of the things that i think has changed the tenor of a lot of social conversations that we have now is the existence of social media and just in the ways that like you know as a as a child i you know, I was still very much a child when when the when Rodney King was assaulted and that was documented mm-hmm. and all of everything that resulted from that and the the coverage like, you know, I I was not very socially aware at the time I was a child and like I don't have very clear memories, memories of that. But as we've sort of progressed over the last 10 years, like Trayvon Martin, the the coverage of these things has has increased and it's not only just the coverage but it's also the visibility of things like michael brown and ferguson george floyd and mm-hmm. in, in minneapolis these things unfolding in real time people responding to them in real time the communities that suffer expressing their suffering in real time the moments in between when people when people are talking about racism in america and one of the things like one of the things about social media is that it does give everyone does give everyone an opportunity to share their their perspective it it's also this really it's also this interesting place that like everybody relates to social media in different ways uh some people may just be posters who are shit posting you know mm-hmm. and like and making making posts and some people are super sincere and talking uh, about mm-hmm. their experience and everything in between those those two extremes. So, social media, the reason why I want to wanted to ask you about how how you approach it is because I do think it is sort of social media has become the place where we learn about tragedies, then we also process them some oftentimes in public, then by observing other people a lot of times that that can complicate our own emotional processing sometimes sometimes that's good sometimes you know if if sometimes that's good because you see you 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 get a more insight into how other people are processing something but sometimes if you're just if you're extremely online then it becomes speaking for myself a lot of times i will take on other people's emotions or internalize them and it that means that it's it it takes longer for me to process my Mm. my own response or or that sort of thing and then there's all of these ways in which some people may consider anti-racist type education that happens online as performative you know and write it off Mm. again that's another example Mm. of a way to respond to this sort of stuff Mm-hmm. And that makes and with all with all that being said, it being sort of part of part and parcel of uh, talking about books, sharing your life, uh, it's become part of our society. Uh, and I think like we're at this inflection point with like Twitter being taken over by mm-hmm. you know, like a, a shit poster like Elon Musk. We're at this inflection point where we're sort of considering the value of these things so when it comes to in particular anti-racism work that and you you've done you've done that and i do want to close eventually close out and talk about 
your other work, your other media that you've created, but part of your work has been in this public space. How are you relating to social media and using it for your own for your own purposes and for the ways in which you try to engage with people within this within this sort of very confusing <laughs> confusing mm-hmm. space uh it's it's just it's it's become it went from like you know it when we were in college it was like in myspace you would mm-hmm. you know put your five favorite songs <laughs> and your five favorite friends and now right. it's like now it's you know affecting elections and <laughs> like uh it's just a it's a major major complex thing and we have to sort of reckon with how we use that too so i that's a long preamble i apologize um but i mean okay. it's to me it's just so fascinating and just something that i try to be cognizant of as i continue to to relate to these things because it is one of the one of the ways that we are at least partially present in people's lives yeah i mean uh social media is so it's so complex and i feel like to your even in your preamble you do you it there's a there are milestones within like the history of social media so obviously like i've engaged with it in different ways over the years and it for a while it was like but i won't even talk about that but like i I think as i started doing this work more publicly as austin and i i think especially as i started working with austin outside of the church environment and we started doing we started doing the next question web series and, you know, posting more mm-hmm. about that. And I was starting to to as things at the church that I was working at were kind of like fizzling away. And I, I felt like the outlet that I had for my own like pursuit of racial justice was happening less and less there. It became more about like, well, now I, I need to like find other people. I want to find community of people that are doing this. And that's pretty somewhat easy to do in a space like the internet where, you know, there's like subgroups for so many different things. And, and I'm a creative and a writer. And so like that became like a, it it felt like a, like a very like natural evolution of kind of timing and everything coalescing to like, oh, it's less about me, like telling you that my, you know, I, my dog had a birthday and it's more about, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, grapple with questions that I'm having or, you know, like with news headlines and and what I'm doing in response. So I think as you were talking, I I got this, like, I'm a very like metaphor heavy person, which is both good and annoying (laughs) because (laughs) I can't just say things directly. I have to, I have to morph them into a metaphor, but I feel like as I, I'm, almost never on Twitter. I, and I probably will deactivate my account like tomorrow, but, but Instagram has been the medium that I've been on the most. And as I engage there, I think what I, I got this image as you were talking, Blake, of almost like a window and a mirror. And I I think a lot of people want to use Instagram to like, you know, show up a reflection of themselves that they have control over that Mm -hmm. they've, put a filter on or that they, you know, I mean like literally or like a mirror to their actual face and like, you know, selfies or whatever. And I think I view my social media work or like engagement as I want it to feel like a window into like what I'm engaging in, not just like what I'm putting out into the world, but like, Hey, here's a conversation I had with my kid or here's like things I'm thinking about that, that extend beyond like I'm not just like creating social media content like that that feels 
Um, and I think a lot of people that are earnestly in this space aren't. They really are. There is a through line. Their life matches up how they show up online. There is an integrity to the work that is not just for show, that is not just for optics. Like I have been around enough smoke and mirrors to mm. say I don't want it. I don't want that. And if mm-hmm. it starts to feel like that, like I don't, then I don't show up in that space in that same way or I name it and say, this is like, yeah, how does this look? I mean, but I, but I think if it feels more like the work is happening behind the scenes before I'm like showing up on social media, that helps it feel like its roots are deeper and in my actual life than they are in just of like joining the bandwagon and whatever like hashtag came up or like, I, I think I try to be a lot more proactive in what I share online as opposed to reactive because Mm -hmm. I think the reactive muscle for so many like white people in particular in their pursuit of racial justice, the reactive muscle is strong. We know how to like post a black square. We know how to like fill out a hashtag. We know (laughs) how to sign a petition. We know. Right. (laughs) I mean, talk about acknowledging your mistakes. Like I I did yeah. the black, I did the black square thing and I I posted an apology because like I learned yes. it was a misinformation tactic you know but I I yeah I did that too you know better you do better right mm-hmm. like it's not like why didn't you know can't do it's like oh whoops anyway moving on right like I mean and sorry let me go back not just anyway moving on I'm going to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that is one of the things that I spent a lot of time in my book, like reflecting on is the importance of like confession and the importance of lament and asking for forgiveness, which are things that the white evangelical church is horrific at doing. And so it's really important to do in this work of like slowing yourself down to say, I did make a mistake and I want to, it's important to acknowledge that, but I'm not going to come back to this mistake, you know, like, I'm not going to let the mistake be bigger than the issues of injustice that are occurring, right? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to hold them right sized in space and in conversation. And, but yeah, I, I, that I, I think that, oh, Blake, what was I saying? Sorry, you, you lost, now I'm Uh, thinking of all the black uh, squares. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, that's okay. No, you were talking about, um, you know, acknowledging, acknowledging that um, mistakes are made and taking the space for that. Um, Yeah. If that brings you back. Otherwise, I mean, yes, the black square thing, ridiculous. And I did it like I, like it came across my feed and I didn't. Mm. I didn't research it. And then I totally, I totally posted it quickly. Yeah. I did. I did eventually, you know, I, I think that I made like, uh, mistakes were made type of post. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> Cause I mean, yeah, Let I, me name I did it and I didn't, I didn't, that was my own, my own moment of, of like, yeah, I, I've made a mistake. And so yeah, I, that is, I think that's, that's one thing that, that, I mean, in general social media, like people are so afraid. I think people are afraid of making mistakes. Um, because they're, they're worried about, about mobs, you know, and bad faith actors online. And those fears Mm. can be, you know, they can be legitimate, you know, those things, those things can happen. I I think I'm hopeful that, that like there will be some sort of, there will develop a capacity for people to expect a level you know, expect people to continue to 
expect pushback online, you know, yeah. online, can yeah. be, but at the same time, I wonder if like our own sort of the, what the sort of emotions that we bring to social media will continue to sort of mature. I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that yeah. in like a condescending way. I mean, I, I yeah. have related to and made, made those mistakes and, and changed my relationship many times over to not just because it is public. It is, that is the one thing that yeah. makes, that is the one thing that makes social media. Like I'm always wary of the term community when people talk about like an Instagram mm -hmm. feed, because a lot of community is private or semi-private or not entirely public. And there's well, more and to a community. Person. Than... It's, you're mm -hmm. not just like a series of posts that you've curated. Like you're a whole person. Yeah. Like it's, Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it is to like your earlier point, like it is where so much education is happening. And I think that's really important to acknowledge, but it can't, I think just like anything, like it can't be the only place that you're learning. Like if it's not, if it's not causing you to like rent or attend, you know, like if it's, if it's only living on the internet and that's where every, like, the extent of like any change is going to occur then it makes sense that that's why you're terrified that people are going to like call you out or cancel you or you know come after you in the comment section or because like that's where all your all your stock <laughs> all your eggs are in that basket of like that's why it's going to matter so deeply so like even just yesterday i did a post there was a, a horrific mass shooting at a nightclub in colorado springs and I woke up to to that on the like, you know, trans day of remembrance and it was just like, oh my gosh. And, you know, like I was saying, our reactive skills are good and mine are, mine are pretty dang quick. And so I started, obviously in my mind, I cannot think of Colorado Springs without thinking of James Dobson. And so I started like Googling and found a, a, an advocate article connecting him to saying, or what I thought he was saying, which was like, be a man, shoot trans, true, shoot transgender people in the bathroom. And so I like got on there and I like posted it. And pretty quickly, like a few people reached out and were like, hey, is this a direct quote? Like, what's going on here? And I like, is this creating more harm if someone if someone were just to like be scrolling through on the on the heels of like a new story like this? And now they see like out of context, this quote from this man. And so I like took it down and changed it slightly because I, and I'm not like, wow, <laughs> what a heroic, <laughs> where is my peace prize? You know, but just like, have to be like, oh, whoop. I mean, and, and not to be like slight with or casual with our mistakes. That's not what I'm saying, but to, but to not be unteachable or unmovable or so like I said what I said and it stands like, I, I, I think. I think how we react to our mistakes is also really important. Like not just how we react to the harm that's happening in the world, but how we react to our own times where we mess up is also cool. And part of how we get over ourselves quicker so that we can get back to the task of the harm and hurt and injustice and evil that actually has occurred. And I think like what I was going to say earlier was like, we are so quick to react. And I think a lot of people need, need better muscle of being more proactive so that it doesn't feel like it all hinges on something terrible happening. And that's when they're in community processing it, or that's when they're on Instagram processing it and scrolling hashtags or whatever. Like it, it needs to be, it needs to be 
gosh, I have so many like Christianese things coming back to me, Blake. It's, it's okay. really funny, it's just okay. the nature is... of this, of this, of of knowing your audience and knowing this topic. But like just thinking about what we used to say at church, you know, Sunday is so really like come together so that like the rest of the week we can go out and like do our real ministry. Like, mm-hmm. but I I do think that kind of applies. Like, you know, you find your 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 people that you're kind of doing this maybe more publicly with or more like outwardly, and then you go back to your life and you and it and it fills in the rest of your week. It's not, you know, you're not just like a Sunday Christian and then, you know, mm, Monday right. through Saturday sinner. You're you're supposed to be like a is this triggering right. for anyone? Sorry. Uh <laughs> but like, you know, it's supposed to be happening throughout the week, right? Like it's a walk. It's an ongoing daily work. And yeah. I think the same thing is is to be said for any of the issues of like justice or things that were we're right. putting our hands to it can't all hinge on the optics of the you know i mean right like yeah. i'm not a scientist but it's like dopamine we're getting for, like we it's 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 a very strange thing to having people like something that's about some like lives that were taken like that's like a very like the human psyche like i i had one of my biggest posts happen where i gained like the most people after uvaldi and it was, I had to like just shut my phone down because I was like this, I don't know, like, I was like. Right. That's such a strange thing to get. Shitless. Yeah. And to then like. Reinforcement oh, sort of. People, from... More eyes on my work at the same time is like cognitive dissonance or something. It's it's, And I think a lot of people, it starts like when, when the crowds are liking them, they start giving, you know, like it becomes more important than, any, than the actual reason that they maybe started sharing some of this work online in the first place and so i think it is that balance and it, and that's why it can't just be happening on social media but it is a weird it's a plethora of things that it evokes in us it's just humans that want recognition and want to be liked and want to feel part of like connected to something bigger than ourselves it's just yeah. like perfect storm right of definitely Definitely. And I I mean, it is definitely, it's such a, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Like this is one conversation. It's, you know, one attempt to to sort of explore how two people relate, relate to this. It's not necessarily, I, you know, I, I feel like throwing conditions on, (laughs) on this, you know, like, which is sort of an over explaining, I don't know, tendency that I, that I can certainly have at times. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, but nonetheless, like it is, it is part of life. And so I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear your perspective on it. Yeah. Thanks. I, that's helpful to even, how often do we get asked to talk about that? Like, I think it's just, if you're a creative on Instagram, it's just like, how do you get more people to look at your work? And yeah, but to do it with integrity is something that I think is worth really processing and, and, and worth naming, naming the complexity right. of of it. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate that space. Thank you. Oh, of course, of course. And thank you for exploring it with me. I actually want to, I, I'm going to actually refer folks to the book. Go get the book to, to, to explore mm-hmm. what Jenny has to say about how anti-racism figures into parenting and, and what that means to how you communicate with your kids and how you continue to address these things in your own life in order to talk to them, to them, to your kids about these issues, that there's a lot of really good stuff in the book about that. But to close out, I'd love for you to mention some of the other work that you've done. You've mentioned your relationship, your working relationship 
as well as your friendship with Austin Channing Brown. Um, where can people find the the next question uh, web series mm-hmm. that you did? Uh, are there any other sort of things that that you want to m- mention as resources or other things that that you have done or that you've done with Jen- with um with Austin or other other partners? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the next question was a Kickstarter web series that we created where we got to like pinch me when I say this, but we got to sit down with the likes of Nicole Hannah-Jones and Brene Brown and Andre Henry and Charlene Carruthers and Maya Shenoir and uh, Rachel Cargill and Jasmine Guillory. I think that's the extent of everyone that was on because I started naming it and I just didn't stop because I couldn't <laughs> exclude anyone from that list, but had, had really tried to go beyond kind of like the 101 level conversations that we often have when we have these brilliant thinkers and activists and authors and journalists of our times. And so you can find those episodes at tnqshow.com and they'll send you to, I think they're both on YouTube and Vimeo, depending on how you prefer to watch. And then you know, right now I just launched my book, Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option. It, it, it's it been out into the world one month ago tomorrow. It, it just released four weeks ago. And then I'm actually working with Austin on helping her launch her young readers version of her book, I'm Still Here. So that actually comes out in April of 2023. And so if you have, you know, I really appreciated even the way, Blake, that you talked about the parenting section of my book, because I really tried to a make it broad enough that even if you like don't have kids, there's only maybe like half of a chapter that like doesn't apply to you. That is very direct. Mm -hmm. Like if your kids in kindergarten here, you know, here's kind of like what to say. But I think so much of this work in, in any, like any evolution or, or ongoing work, we have to be, you know, there's, there's vernacular around kind of, you know, like reparenting ourselves, right? Like, like we can't, we can't, say that the parenting experience is over just because like we're adults, like we're still processing how we were parented and and how we were raised. And I try to do that for people in my book of saying like, hey, the things that you might be talking about your kids or that like might be age appropriate for them are also actual like messages that you might need to hear as well. Like it's not, it doesn't like go out of style just because you're over the age of 12 now. (laughs) Um, And I think in some ways, that's kind of what Austin's book is doing as well is I know she's taking her readers to kind of her to stories of her being younger and, and really processing like the things that she loves about being a black girl in our country and the things that are really painful. And so I I think it's going to be, I just, she just sent me an early copy. So I've just started reading it and I think it's going to be a gift to people, like no matter how old they are. So I would love to plug that for her. Um, and if you haven't read her first book, I would, I would obviously start there. I'm still here. Black, di- mm-hmm. black dignity in a world made for whiteness. And you will notice um, in the, one of the first chapters, she actually shares the story of meeting me and of, of where my book title came from. So her her creative partnership, her friendship has definitely been encouragement to me of being a white woman in this work, a role that I don't take lightly and a, and a, and a, a road that I'm trying to really make sure that I'm ocu- occupying the space that is intended for me. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think the audio book of my book comes out soon. So if you're an audiobook person, I'll be posting about that, but I'm on Instagram at Jenny B. Potter. Yeah, I think that's 
Awesome. That's mostly it. Those That's are a great. lot of things, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jenny, for joining me today, talking about your book. I think it's a great resource for, for folks who, for white folks like us who have to do this work. And I, and in the same way that someone gave you permission, you are extending that very same permission to folks who, who need it, who might, that might mm -hmm. be the impetus they need to address these things. And that's a very valuable, very vulnerable as well place to place to occupy. So you will find the links uh, to purchase, purchase Jenny's book in the show notes. Thank you very much, Jenny, for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks so much, Blake. I really am grateful for you and for this time together. 